Andros here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tig Notaro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to the World is Wrong podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Black Snake Moan. <laughs> Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films the world is wrong about. I am one of your hosts. I am Andras Sadlip Jones. <laughs> and I'm Brian Cool Guy Connolly. <laughs> and together we are your blues men. We you could we we're sort of we're like brothers. Like so, we're like your blues siblings, and <laughs> I love that movie, The Blues Siblings. Yeah, it's yeah. like the best John Landis movie. <laughs> it's it's I uh, you know, uh, boy, this film, this 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 show, this show is already as uh, conflicting and potentially troubling as the film we're about to discuss, Black Snake Moan. <laughs> <laughs> from the director Craig Brewer starring Samuel L. Jackson Christina Ricci and Justin Timberlake and uh, why don't we just play a clip from it and then start talking about it you know what the sun's all about when the lights go on you been doing to me? I ain't laid a hand on you except to break your fever. Like I said, now, I goddamn chain off me. Look, girl, you've been running wild on me. Between them fits and them fever dreams you having, I've been chasing you all over this place at night. Well, I'm woke now. You can take this off. No. You ain't right yet. I'm right enough to stand on my own two feet. Now get this goddamn chain off me. Why you let them men treat you like that? What? All them men's you up under. Why you let them do you like that? What the hell you know about me? You ain't got no right to talk to me about that shit. Who the fuck do you think you are? I saved your life, girl. I can do and say whatever the fuck I want. Now I didn't give you enough change so you can get around the house here. You can get the kitchen, bathroom back yonder. Got enough food around here. You more swallows left in that medicine over there. Whatever you want, you know, if you want to have me, you can you can take me. I, I'll do whatever you like. I just, when you're done, I gotta go, you know, because I can't, I, I can't stay here with you. God 
seen fit to put you in my path. And I aim to cure you of your wickedness. He's some kind of pervert. No, ma'am. Some crazy Jesus freak and fuck the spirit in me. You watch your tongue in my house. Look at mister. Now you sick. You got a sickness. We done do. broke the field. Now we gonna break the whole Okay, I'm trying something a little bit new here. Uh, I didn't, you, if you've noticed in the past, I tend to write up a long description of these films and then they, then it kind of turns into a lecture. And so I'm trying something <laughs> a little bit different. I just wanted to like just dive in. I love this movie and I love its simplicity. I love its audaciousness. I love how, uh, how it, Seemingly is one thing, but it's another thing. Uh, it was Craig Brewer's follow-up to Hustle and Flow, which I just watched for the first time last night in preparation for this. It was a big blind spot, and boy, is that great. And this is a fantastic follow-up to it, starring Samuel L. Jackson as a bluesman and farmer in the South, modern South, a character named Lazarus, who's going through a painful divorce and Christina Ricci, who is a character suffering through some form of PTSD manifesting as what might be called nymphomania and her character who does a lot of drugs and is trying to survive after her beloved boyfriend uh, fiance, uh, lover, Justin Timberlake has gone off to join the army. And so she's alone and she has these fits that lead her to just need to have sex with lots of different people. And these two characters come together when she is dumped outside of Samuel Jackson's uh, farm on this lonely road where he's the only one around and she's this beaten and sexually molested white woman in her underwear and a very skimpy top and Samuel Jackson doesn't know what to do except to bring her in and try and nurse her back to health because if he calls the police it's not going to go well especially if she's you know it could you know we, we know all too well how poorly that could go and then what happens is this fantastic uh, drama between these two characters that leans heavily into Samuel Jackson's or Lazarus's background as a blues musician and it has this whole bluesy element there's also this very Southern Baptist churchy element that might turn me off that sort of plays into it and the thing that everyone talks about about this film, and maybe this is I'm just going to start seeking into how the world might be wrong about it, is everyone talks about it as the film where Samuel Jackson chains Christina Ricci to a radiator. And that, I think the film purposely wants us to think that that's what the film is about. And a film poster mm -hmm. with a black man and chains and a scantily clad white woman is going to push a lot of buttons and then you watch this movie and it's so much it's so much playing against what you assume that movie is going to be while also delivering a lot of the stuff that you would want from that movie that you yeah. 
don't want it to be. You know, there's a, there's a lot of sweaty, sexy bodies and there's humor and there's <laughs> just that, I don't know, that kind of, uh, that movie, that, I don't know, almost grindhouse feeling movie from the 70s feeling. Yeah. But then the film is a lot more concerned with redemption and with boundaries and with healing than you'd ever expect from a movie that has the poster and the premise that this one does. So, yeah. uh, Yeah. So I hope that works as a description. There's a lot more we'll get into. (laughs) Uh, What do you think, Brian? Oh, um, yeah. This movie is really interesting. It's not at all what I expected. Because I was kind of going and thinking this would be maybe feeling kind of like a Tarantino movie of sort of like a... 21st century version of an exploitation film and instead you have sort of like in the middle of this movie there's like this exploitation movie but it's actually like filled out and surrounded by a movie that's not at all an exploitation movie which is really fascinating because i feel like tarantino movies like kind of stay in that exploitation world ish like even his more serious like or more you know quote-unquote real stuff like once upon a time in hollywood or like um uh, the Hateful Eight, it still kind of has this roots in this exploitation cinema that he loves so much, and it works. But this movie kind of goes back and forth. but It kind of dips its toes into exploitation or jumps all in, and then it'll jump out and be like, oh, here's the heart that you don't get from that, or here's sort of the more, the, 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 this interaction with people that wouldn't be in that movie. And I really enjoyed how it played played with those elements. And Samuel Jackson is fucking amazing. <laughs> I mean, he always is, but he's really good in this movie. Yeah, I think this... At the time, he said that he felt like it was his finest performance. And as I was looking through his very, very impressive career, you want to have your mind blown? Go check out Samuel L. Jackson's IMDb. It... Like, he... Basically, he's one of those actors who never broke out he just kept he keeps plateauing he keeps upping his plateau basically you think oh well this was his breakout and then he was in star wars and then he was in all these tarantino films that you you know you thought happened before like his timeline gets all kind of screwy but uh this really does stand out as an amazing performance of his um, and I, oh, yeah. it was the film that made me start thinking of him as our Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. I remember you saying that to me a long time ago, and that was a very interesting revelation. Like, I'd never thought of that, and it totally makes sense. Right, because he's a guy who, because he came up playing heavies, there's an implied menace to him no matter what role he's playing. Like, it's almost like the weakest Samuel Jackson can play, like, say, a character like Glass is just always going to be. That's why he's great as that character, because him sitting in that wheelchair carries menace and he can always play off of that. Yeah. This film, when I watched it recently, I was thinking how it's kind of like a it's not in a lonely place but it functions similarly in his career as uh in a lonely place does for Bogart 
in the same way that like because we bring this dangerousness and romance with the Bogart character, it makes that character in that film way more complex than it would be mm-hmm. just on the paper. And it's the same yes. it's the same thing here. Where yeah. Samuel L. Jackson he does a couple of things that are threatening and tough, but for the most part Again, if this was played by another character, I feel like there would be, it would just be a totally different film. It just with it, with any other actor in it, in that role. Um, so, sorry. Cool. So, uh, why is the how is the world wrong about this movie? Oh, sorry. I kind of well, I kind of worked that into my <laughs> my description, which is just basically, I feel like the film, the film wants you to be wrong about this movie. Like, it is consciously saying, hey, this is going to be a sexy, sultry, potentially racially charged film, and you're going to feel weird and sexy and, you know, and then you watch it, and it's like, this is this this film about relationships and Christianity and redemption and the blues, um... And, again, you... And you're going to get what you paid for. You'll get, you know, you'll get... Christina Ricci walking in her short shorts and her little cropped top and telling a truck to fuck off with her finger in the air and the blues music playing. (laughs) And, you know, you get you'll you know, you get Samuel Jackson dragging her uh, back into the farm by the chain. And if you just saw that scene, you'd be like, oh, this is a terrifying, terrifying movie. But if you get that, what he's doing is like. You know, in an archetypal way, he's giving her these boundaries that she never got before. And in the end, it makes this great statement about how powerful and healing great boundaries can be. And even and having something like a physical uh, symbol of those boundaries can be all you need to, I don't know, to... to pull you back from uh, the edge of some sort of uh, neurosis or psychosis. And so in a way, the way the world is wrong about this film is a way that the film wants the world to be wrong about it. And that's one of the things that I really love about this film is that that's a, that's a really tight high wire to walk and you have mm-hmm. to be really yeah. sure of yourself as a director to do that, to make that kind of a choice. Is I'm going to make a movie that you think is one thing, and you're going to come, and you're going to get that one thing, but you're actually not going to get that one thing, and I'm going to take you to a totally other place that you would never go to if I advertised this film about being about good boundaries and healing <laughs> and Christianity. <laughs> and it's funny because when you read the critics' reviews... It does uh, seem like some of them do can't get out of the trap of the exploitation part of it, though. Like, a lot of them are just, like, offended by this movie, and no matter what. And it makes me wonder if they actually finished it, if they just watched the first 30 minutes <laughs> and turned it off. You know, I think it was... I don't know if it was Peter Travers or somebody was like, this is one of the worst sex movies I've ever seen. It's like, I don't think this movie's supposed to be sexy, in the way that you think it, I don't, I don't know. It's just interesting that some people really did kind of trip over the exploitation part and couldn't get out of it. And other people like you 
can like see beyond that and see that there actually is a much um, a more interesting movie than just a throwback to exploitation going on here. Yeah, I actually found myself a little bit like I wanted to be offended by like there's a point when Samuel Jackson's character is pretty pissed off because the wife who left him had an abortion of and so there's this the yeah. film's sort of anti-abortion and it's pro-Christianity yeah. And there's something about that that I could see myself being, I would be more offended by that. And the sort of just the general sex negativity of portraying this woman who has strong sexual desires as being, like you've heard me in my description, like I don't like the word nymphomaniac because it pathologizes what might in in a lot of cases be very be totally healthy behavior in this case it's not because it's in this movie and it's really amped up but those are all things that could have pushed my buttons of like the sex negativity the anti-abortion the sort of redemptive christianity aspect of it but all of those worked and i think in a way they all worked because they were grounded in this other more complex gritty reality and then also the sort of lurid iconography of a blues song which if you are a fan of hustle and flow you kind of get that okay this is a guy who really he draws a lot of his energy as a filmmaker from music like both of his first two films were so deeply uh musical and i guess you could say the same thing about i guess his other films footloose is a musical and dolomite even though it's yeah. not a, not a musical, it is it has a musical element to it because yeah. of Dolomite's language. Yes. Um, so, and that movie too does the same trick as this movie, where you have these expectations going in. Like I remember Dolomite being like, "This is going to be some fun, you know, movie." Like it's Eddie Murphy doing this fun version of like Rudy Ray Moore. And then when you watch the movie, there's so much heart in it that is unexpected, and it feels so good. When you finish Dolomite, you weren't expecting to feel so uplifted and positive. And this movie kind of does the same trick of you think it's going to be a feeling a certain way when you watch it, but then you end up feeling a little more positive than you thought it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good. Tr- it it makes sense that he also works a lot in TV because that's a sort of a very TV ish way of doing drama. That you you know you get people in with a yeah. a racy idea, but you got to give them those some resolve that makes it easier for them to go to sleep and you know wake up and go to work the next day. <laughs> so yeah, Craig Brewer. Let's talk. I guess he's one of those people who you could say that the world might be wrong about because he did hustle and flow and it got academy award nominations and then he did black snake moan and it really it seemed like that kind of fell flat even though i think it's an amazing film and we're making the case that it's an amazing film but then he mostly worked in tv he worked he directed the shield he directed a great series that i loved called terrier that features the villain from black snake moan michael raymond james and he yeah he was one of the main characters in terriers which there was only one season of did you see that did that you see that series no i've heard about it and i never knew what it was about what's it about it's really good uh donald logue and michael raymond james are these sort of i don't know Southern California, but like not LA, like more down towards San Pedro vibe. 
uh, sort of down and out cop detectives. I guess uh, Donald Logue is an ex-cop and Michael Raymond James is uh, his buddy who's a former criminal and they kind of solve crimes but are also doing crimes and it's a fun show. It's it's gritty and uh, I was a big fan of Lodge 49 and I remember thinking that Lodge 49 it's a different it's a lighter series but still got they both got that thing of there is a big there's a southern california that exists further south of la that is like this working yeah. class um beach culture that is really its own thing and when shows or films capture that i just i love it um but anyway so craig brewer did an, did a, an episode of that he worked a lot on the series Empire, which I had not even realized until today how much the series Empire feels like a sequel to Hustle and Flow because Terrence Howard and Taraji P. Henson are both in Empire playing characters who seem like they could be the older versions of the characters they played in Hustle and Flow. And that's just like this weird bit of world crossing that I was totally unaware of. And now I'm kind of more excited to go back. And I, I kind of stopped after the first season of empire, but it kind of makes me want to go back and check out further seasons. And of course, created by our old friend Lee Daniels, right? Directed the paper boy, which we did. And there's a lot of, a lot of black Samuel kind of reminding me of the paper boy a little bit, just that kind of sweaty, lurid sort of like, it's kind of filthy and dirty <laughs> kind of make you feel movie, but not, but with like, but Paperboy definitely doesn't ever really make you feel good towards the end of the movie. Things go horribly wrong and stay that way. Whereas this movie, it takes a nice upswing at the end. Um, <laughs> but it makes sense that Craig Brewer would work with Lee Daniels for an episode or two of his of his show. Not just uh, it looks like several uh, twenty episodes of Empire. Wow. So I oh, really wow. feel like uh, like I'm guessing it looks like Lee Daniels was so inspired by hustle and flow that he created empire and it's almost like empire is fan is hustle and flow fan fiction that got much bigger than the source (laughs) material and so it just made sense that then he brought in craig brewer actually as a as a director and as a consulting producer on the whole thing so yeah, yeah, there's that's not a hidden connection. It's just one that I wasn't aware of. <laughs> and if you like that feel that paperboy black snake moan feeling, Hustle and Flow definitely has it in a way that Dolomite is my name does not. Yeah. Something he made those two sweaty, pushy, assured films, and then he did a bunch of TV, and now he's Eddie Murphy's guy, it seems like, because he did Dolomite is my name and now he's doing coming to America too. So Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> yes. Uh it's completed and uh due in 2021. But there is a there is a a connection that I noticed between The Paper Boy and Black Snake Moan, which was the uh the featured uh appearance of tidy whitey underwear on Good-looking young movie stars in uh, <laughs> the Paperboy. It's Zac Efron, and in Black Snake Moan, it's Christina Ricci. Who? <laughs> what an amazing! Like we talked, we talked about Samuel L. Jackson's amazing career. Oh, 
How many great films has Christina Ricci been in? Like, Not a lot, but there's a lot. But they're real. But she's always really good in them. Like the thing is, like she also just does it. Like Samuel Jackson makes a move a million movies a year, but Christina Ricci, I feel like the few movies that she's made. I mean, not few. She's still made a bunch. But like, whenever she shows up, it always feels kind of special. Like she's not in a lot of things. So when you get something like this or a Buffalo 66 or whatever, it's always very exciting because she's always trying something new and really taking chances, like doing really brave, like, like you know, brave roles, you know, stuff that is would be hard for an actor to want to do. Like to be in a movie where you're basically practically naked for the whole damn movie like that's not gonna be fun yeah <laughs> you're really that's like that's that's hard work like can you imagine like most scenes in movies when you do like a sex scene maybe at most it could take two days maybe where you're sitting around naked but usually you're in a bed or something but like here she's like walking around chained up practically nude the whole damn time like the most of the movie yeah <laughs> so i can't imagine just like doing 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 that yeah feeling good in that state all yeah and she yeah she she definitely owns it oh yeah and i don't think i've ever seen her do a performance like this before like i've always thought she was good but she is really good in this movie like she really like it's a character that could have very easily been like over the top Oh, yeah. Uh, like, if you're playing sort of like, I'm really horny all the time, like, that character could turn into a parody. But she she grounds it, and she makes it totally realistic. Like, it's a, it's extreme. Like, the character is an... Ex, it's like an exaggeration of sort of a sex maniac. <laughs> but, like, she pulls it off. Like, it does it. Like, you don't hate her. You're not disgusted by her. Like, you really she do and feel the for film. her. Like, I, I really yeah. feel like that's... That's where the filmmaking, like Samuel Jackson has the the great performance at the center of it, but the film knows that it's all, like he gets to be great because he's reacting to this primal force that is Christina Ricci. And she, as you said, it could come off, it comes off as this, you really feel the desperation and the woundedness and the... Like you don't feel like she's just like a sex pot, even though the film kind yeah. of treats her like it would treat a sex pot, but it also treats her like it would treat a uh, sort of a a broken heroine trying to find her way towards uh, towards health or towards redemption. And mm-hmm. again, such a fine line to walk for everyone involved, but particularly as you said for her, other than you know maybe. Burt Lancaster in The Swimmer. I can't think of another film that I feel like... Where you're naked. <laughs> yeah, like, that's hard. It's like to be the whole movie in your swim trunks, that's... It's just a... Yeah. You got to be, first of all, be very confident in who you are. And even then, it's not easy. I don't care how confident you are. You you show up on set every day and be basically naked for a month to six weeks. It's, <laughs> you know... Especially, and again, Christina Ricci, a lot of her characters are, again, I don't think she's ever, I don't she's ever played a character that leaned into the sexuality, the physical sexuality in this way. Nothing I can think of. Um, yeah. 
but she has had i mean if you go you go back all the way to adam's family like she has great films as a where she gave great performances as a kid and then she has great performances as a like in the ice storm and the opposite of sex Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. buffalo 66 when she was a kid when she was more like a teenager a young woman and then she has this as more of an adult and i don't know if you ever saw it but there she was in the series it wasn't great but she was great in it called pan am and oh yeah yeah i think that was kind of dismissed as like a madman ripoff and people kind of cast it aside pretty quickly but she was the donald draper she and she totally her character was fantastic in that film and it's i mean in that series again it wasn't that great a series but she was just on another level and you know I, i i look forward to seeing as she seeing what kind of films she does as she becomes an older actress, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I feel like we, it seems like we, maybe we get one or two great Christina Ricci roles every decade. Mm-hmm. And by the end, you know, well, by the end, I'll probably be dead. I won't get, I won't, she'll outlive me. So good for her. <laughs> <laughs> she might be a smoker. You don't know. <laughs> she's smoking. I don't know if she's a smoker. Uh, <laughs> Now, did you notice who who played her mother? Yeah, that's Kim Richards, child child star. She was in uh, uh, Watcher in the Woods, right? Escape to which? Is that Mountain? Kim Richards? Yeah, Escape to which Mountain? Like, yeah, and she's one of the uh, Real Housewives. I don't know which one she is. I'm guessing Beverly Hills. But uh, yeah, I don't think I've seen a movie with her as a grown up in it. Yeah, Tough Turf maybe was the last one I saw her in. That uh, I didn't, I I've seen this movie for years. I never recognized her as being uh, Kim Richards. Uh, she's not a very likable character in this, and Kim Richards is someone I had a crush on through much of my childhood. So uh, yeah, so she's in it. Uh, any other any other performances that you feel like were were stand out? Well, we didn't we didn't talk about Justin Timberlake. I mean, everyone loves their. They're Justin Timberlake. They can't get enough of the of the JT. <laughs> Are you a fan of? Oh, I'm sorry. Of, I'm, of yeah, I, and I made, I made. I'm sorry. I think a Ky, Kylie Richards is the one in Watching the Woods. Kim Richards is is Escape to Witch Mountain. I get their sisters. They look the same. I get confused. But uh, yeah, Timberlake. Is this the first big Timberlake role in a movie? Was this sort of like his his kind of breakthrough being an actor? Because I could, I now know him like now he's been in like Social Network and he's like you know established as like I could be in movies as an actor. But I'm trying to think like is this the earliest time where he's in a anything like actually with a sizable role where it's like not just something in the background or just being Justin Timberlake? Yeah, it looks like it. It looks like it. You know, judging judging from his IMDb page, the things before I mean, that this- he was in Southland Tales. He was in Alpha Dog. He was in Edison. But uh, like Alpha Dog and Southland Tales is all the same year. So in 2006, he was just sort of like, okay, I'm going to be an actor now. <laughs> and all three of those movies are great. So uh, he t- t- definitely started strong. And he, you really feel sorry for him in this movie. <laughs> you kind of like, it seems like he's going, like he's doesn't really want to go off in the military. And then they kind of allude that he fu- he fucks up and he gets discharged. How, why is he discharged? I kind of missed, like, why is he sent back so soon? 
Well, you can see the thing that these two characters, it seems that the thing, the thing that binds Justin Timberlake's character to Christina Ricci's character and her to him is that they both share these, uh, I know they both have these fits. And for Justin Timberlake, the fit is an, is sort of like an internal meltdown. Like he just, he has like a panic, he has panic attacks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Whether, you know, if he hears loud noises or if he feels really stressed out and, mm-hmm. you know, not ideal for a war zone. And True. at this and on the same on the same token, by the same token, Christina Ricci has these has these compulsions and they both manifest in the similar way. The in the, the cinematic language around them, it feels like what these two people share is basically you might even say they they have the same neuroses, they just uh, manifest in different ways. They probably both have mm-hmm. some sort of PTSD from childhood trauma, like we see mm-hmm. with Christina Ricci. They explore it a lot more because the film's really much more about her character. But it's one of the things that I love about where the film goes and what it's saying about... You can almost see, like, uh, in the Samuel Jackson character and the Justin Timberlake character these sort of different poles of masculinity, you know, one, one who is the sort of like with Samuel Jackson, he is the, he's a grounded man who knows how to, you know, I will not be moved is a sort of one of his things is like, he's, he has, he's all about boundaries. He has these boundaries for himself. He has these boundaries for other people and like that, that some of them don't work in his life with his, in this relationship with his wife, but that's what he brings to the, this young couple. And Justin Timberlake is sort of like the opposite. He's the t- fully unformed. He's, and, and it kind of makes sense in his career too. He's a fully unformed actor in this film, but he's doing a great job displaying Mm -hmm. that weakness you know this yeah uh, and it's not even it's not a weakness that is like about like that like like oh he's a like his friend who is a a rapist and a terrible person he's weak um that's but whereas justin timberlake is broke his character is broken and trying to find his way towards being the man that christina ricci needs and then through her interaction with Samuel Jackson, she finds the space to be able to be, I don't know, to almost hold that masculine energy for her, for Justin Timberlake when he can't hold it. Like, I want to talk about that last scene. So I guess we will just give this the, the spoiler alert shout out. But what did you make of the last scene? Because in the last scene, Justin Timberlake and Christina Ricci are driving away. They've just gotten married. Everything's going to be okay. And a truck drives by just by the car and it starts to freak Justin Timberlake out. And then mm-hmm. you can see she has this chain that he that she was given from Samuel Jackson. And she just sort of uses it on her finger. And it you can see the film is telling you that that she doesn't need the actual chain she just needs to think about it now and she can find that strength, that internal strength to slow things down and not be swept up as she had been in the past. But uh, what do you make of that last scene? Like, did you, do you feel like there's hope for these two characters? 
Yeah, like I think it was kind of implying that she is now going to teach this lesson to Justin Timberlake in a way of like how to make it so he can live his life, you know, in in a way without being so upset and without having to like she can help him maybe overcome this panic and this like fear that he has and with kind of lessons she learned that she like had this kind of emotional, you know, breakdown of a life and then she was she learned how to kind of put up her own rules and boundaries and how to kind of like be a little more on the straight and narrow or just not be so you know overtaken by her emotions and like ptsd kind of stuff and i think i in my opinion like i think it's implying that she's now gonna like she's reminding herself of what she has and maybe she will pass it to timberlake does it mean she's gonna chain him up too i don't know (laughs) or so in something to the extreme to teach him like his thing's kind of the opposite where he's kind of afraid to go out Whereas she was wanted to leave, you know, so like I don't know what the chain his chain would be, uh, but I think that's kind of the implication that how as I read it. Maybe uh, some hot sauce, and uh, no, that was from last week's. That was last week's film. Yeah, and I guess it's there's another thing to talk about about this is so I I've, I one of our early episodes I spoke about a podcast I follow called the Micho Mission that. Their whole goal is to cover every black film ever made. And the discussion of what makes a film a black film is one of the the central conversations in their show. And Craig Brewer is really interesting in this sense because it feels like he makes, he's a white guy or he looks like a white guy. I don't know where, I don't know anything about him and what his background is, but he presents very much as a white guy, but his, you wouldn't know it from his films. His films feel like they are, well, they're, they're black enough films so that you might, so that you think that the empire, which is clearly a black series is ref is leaning into the mythology created, created by hustle and flow, which is made by this, white guy filmmaker but is i guess i don't know if we were the guys to answer that but it's an interesting point to bring up about craig brewer is yeah he feels like and now that he's sort of eddie murphy's chosen filmmaker you know if he if he's a guy who wants to be a black filmmaker he is certain certainly getting plenty of opportunities to be so between empire Mm -hmm. lee daniels Eddie Murphy, and then those two films, uh, he's getting his wish. And uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Like he's clearly, like clearly this is, these are the types of stories he's drawn to. I don't know if it's where he's from, like based on these movies, it makes it seem like he must be from the South is my guess. And then maybe, yeah, he's from Virginia. So like maybe just, he grew up, in an environment that is maybe more, you know, predominantly black. It's sort of like when you hear stories or when you watch eight mile, about Eminem of just sort of like, yeah, I'm a white guy doing rap, but like, this is the culture I grew up with. Like, this is the environment that I, that formed me. So I'm not going to like run away from that. This is my true. This is my true self. I'm not co-opting a thing. This is what I know. Like, this is who I am. It just, you know, it happens to be the color of my skin. And I think like, it's interesting because I don't hear a lot of people give Craig Brewer shit for that. Not in the same way that, like, say, Eminem would get or a filmmaker like Tarantino. Like, I feel Craig Brewer 
has never had pe- I've never heard anyone complain that he's like co-opting a culture or he's kind of like in the wrong place as a filmmaker and he shouldn't be making these stories. I've never heard that. But I've heard that about you know other people that kind of do the same thing. Is it, do you feel like it's because he like Tarantino is very much out front of his films and Eminem is our is obviously out front. Like basically Craig Brewer doesn't feel like he's like He's kind of like you watch Hustle and Flow and you see Terrence Howard and Taraji P. Henson and all these, you know, you don't see him in it. Yeah, maybe you just don't think about it. You just maybe you're just like maybe a lot of people watch these movies and never know they're made by a white guy because he's not he in his own right is not a celebrity. Like Craig Brewer is not a person that I would recognize on the street or even if you say that name, not a lot of people know who that is. Seems like that's going to change. Between I think so too. Dolomite and Coming to America too. That's I mean Coming to America too is going to be huge. And yeah, you know it's and John it's interesting and that just and it's yeah it's interesting that just like with the first that Coming to America the first one is a a black movie directed by John Landis. <laughs> so like it's interesting that the sequel Eddie Murphy's like let's have a white filmmaker make this sort of black comedy this black film. So that's fascinating that that's. They're sticking with that in 2021. 20, uh, I guess the question is, I mean, John Landis is definitely a white filmmaker. He makes mostly films. He's not just white, but his films are mostly about white people at a time when there weren't a lot of black. There weren't a lot of black filmmakers around. Craig yeah. Brewer is a more interesting case, I think, because. You know, he, he's again, he. Does he break a mold? Like, what is he like? Clearly, he's doing something right in terms of being yeah. able to tell these stories. Although I have to say, when I like as much as I loved uh, My Name is Dolomite, I feel like it didn't have the the cinematic punch of the yeah, Apostle I, yeah. and Flow and Black Snake Moan. They just like they're just really tasty, like like. You can feel the film in them. And My Name is Dolomite is great. I loved it. But looking at it, it doesn't look like it does. It doesn't look like it's made by the same guy. I think that's a Netflix problem. Like all of their movies look like crap for the most part, unless it's like The Irishman or Roma. I think they like to cut corners and make and they just kind of look like television, like not even fancy television, but they just kind of have the cinematic quality is not quite there. I think it kind of looks cheap. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can I think that'll serve. I think that will serve uh, coming to America too really well. I wouldn't want coming to America too to look like Black Snake Moan, but I feel like <laughs> my name is Dolomite could have looked like Black Snake Moan, and it would have been great. But no, I'm not. I'm yeah. not trying to quibble here. Uh, <laughs> there was certainly a, enough that was right with my name is Dolomite that I don't want to. I don't want to complain and. Like I said, I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about Craig Brewer in the coming years. And uh, and I think people will come back to Black Snake Moan. I got to tell you, when I, I've watched it now, like probably three or four times. And every uh, every time I watch it, I'm just struck by how great it looks. Like just the whole, every shot, every uh, like it's just such a such assured filmmaking. Um it's funny, the first time I watched it, it was really, I, I found myself, you know, it was 
it was over a decade ago and I was definitely drawn, you know, I was drawn to my eyes. My male gaze was drawn to Christina Ricci and a little bit distracted by her throughout the first viewing of the film. (laughs) But now that I can just sort of watch it without the suspense and without the sort of prurient gaze, it's just, it's such a beautiful archetypally uh, resonant film. And uh, yeah, I'd love to see, I hope that, Craig Brewer, once he's made his uh, his big Hollywood films, that he will come back to making gritty little character pieces like this because I think he's great at it. He's really great. Yeah, at I always it. hope they come back. And like, man, I love the scene in this movie where Samuel, like, all the scenes of Samuel Jackson just like playing music and him just like kind of working on the song and building up to him doing the show. It's so good. And like, I feel like unlike Humphrey Bogart. Samuel Jackson, to me, can disappear more in a character, even though he has this bigger-than-life persona. Like, I, like I'm just, I got so instantly drawn into, like, the character of Lazarus, you know? Just like I'm instantly drawn into when he plays, like, Jules in Pulp Fiction, or, like, he's always so good at, like, giving you a really fully formed character. And, like, I'm, I'm guessing he must have, like, practiced in... You know, because I don't know if he was a musician before this movie, but he does, he does a really good job. Oh, and it, yeah. Like, it really feels like a character, like it really believed that this character, this is the thing this character's into. Yeah, yeah. Definitely one of the better actor playing musician performances I can think of. The scene, the live scenes where, because like, they, they do this thing where they build them up, like, oh, you know, when we used to come out and dance to him, everyone was curious you know was crazy about your fingers your hard fingers samuel jackson uh and it just builds him up and then when he actually has to perform it's a great great blues performance and yeah this here song from back in the day 1962. My woman put my black ass out in the cold. I said, baby, why are you leaving? She said, I love Dungeon Cold. Well, I waited through water and I waited through mud till I come to this place they calls the Bucket of Blood. bartender give me a dirty look and a dirty glass. I said, say, motherfucker, do you know who I am? He said, hell no, nigga. I don't give a goddamn. I reached down in my pocket and pulled out my shiny 44. Shot that motherfucker twice. He hit the goddamn flow. About that time, you could have heard the drop of a pin. That's when that bad motherfucker Billy Lyons walked in. (laughs) 
About that time, a pip eased up and turned out the lights. That's when I had old Billy Lyons dead in my sight. When the lights come back on, old Billy's gone to rest. I popped nine of my bullets in his motherfucking chest. Uh, the juxtaposition of that with Christina Ricci dancing in the crowd. Uh, just, yeah, some just really rich, delicious filmmaking that you can't, we can't, as much as we describe it, it can't convey how good it feels to be in this movie when once it gets rolling. You're just, especially, again, after the second watch, once the suspense and once... You sort of know where it's going, and then you can just go and leisurely enjoy how delicious the film, the filmmaking is. It's really yeah. it's a film that really comes out on the second watch. So, uh, I wonder what his Footloose is like. Did you watch that? I never saw that. I'm I I have not, but I am now curious. Um, yeah, to yeah, because that's another. I mean, based on the original, that's another story that has a lot of stuff about morality and like you know just some christianity in there too but in kind of a negative way of like they're sort of the villains at least in the original footloose (laughs) so it'd be interesting to see if he still plays with that in his version or what yeah yeah that's one to check out that's one to check out and um i think if there's anything else we need to cover on this film it's one of those it really is one of those films where i just want you to see it like i can tell you about it <laughs> like it should be enough to to then when we say hey samuel jackson one of his best performances christina ricci also great but also you know very very attractive again i don't feel because i don't feel i don't i feel a little bit bad saying that but then i remember that we how much we gushed over zach efron in his underwear in the paper boy that it's like well you know I, yeah we're equally balanced yeah we, we spread it out to everybody yeah <laughs> um but that's yeah the music the, the great actors giving great performances and looking great uh it's just it's a film that is i don't say that's more than the sum of its parts but i it's a film that i feel like the best parts of it are things that cannot be described you just have to experience it so uh well uh let's let's play a a promo for one of our fellow uh paper house podcasts do you call yourself a music fan are you the one making the playlist for all the parties then you've got to listen to the pinch music podcast where we interview musicians engineers producers and music lovers of all types We even put together playlists for any and all occasions. So if you want to have the Beatles vs. Stones debate, pick up some engineering tips, or just discover a new artist, you got to check out the Pinch Music Podcast. All a part of the Paperhouse Network. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film, First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform.
Oh man, did you see the trivia of Greg Craig Brewer about his grandfather? No. His grandfather is Marvelous Marv Thornberry of the 1962 New York Mets. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I guess he should make a baseball movie. <laughs> well, is there anything that we missed out on there, Brian, on your in your notes? See, two other movies that it strangely reminded me of. One is Dogville, starring our favorite Nicole Kidman. Because that's another movie where she... Because she's chained up to that whole movie, right? Don't, isn't she, like, mm-hmm. kept hostage in this town and walking around with, like, shackles on? Um, whereas in that movie, she teaches everyone else a lesson. <laughs> but that's another one where it's sort of like they are like, you're this lady. Like, you, we need you to like, be chained up. Like, you're going to sleep with our men. And, like, there's, like, all this weird stuff going on in that movie. And, like... Def, there's definitely like this movie's nothing like it, but I can see the way this movie, the way that uh, Black Simon kind of pushes the shocking stuff or did in the ads, kind of felt like a Lars von Trier a little bit on how he likes to push things that sometimes on paper his movies also kind of sound like exploitation in a very different way. Like, but his movies are these grand art films, and then the um, the other one that remind me of a bit is The Exorcist, like in a way. <laughs> In a way, like Samuel Jackson's character is sort of like, yeah, he's sort of performing like a, he's sort of like a, a sexual exorcist. I like, sort of like, I'm going to get these horny demons. Like this movie could have been called The Sexorcist is all I'm saying. Like, I will it has cure this sort of thing you of, of like, your wickedness. <laughs> like, because in The Exorcist, like, like uh, Linda Blair's character of Reagan is like handcuffed to, like, to, or tied to the bed and like they're trying to just shake out of her this stuff and as it's going along her she's physically kind of getting more falling apart and then looking more unwashed and sweaty and like i don't know there's some some weird exorcist thing in my mind while watching this movie too another movie yeah no, i mean it's nothing like the exorcist but there's something about oh, no, I, yes it's i think that's you know, a very like, fair <laughs> comparison <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. I just want to let's go. Let's time travel back to an earlier episode about. Can you imagine if uh, when Dudley Moore turned down Bo Derek instead of just going back home, he chained her to her radiator and <laughs> tried to heal her of her. I got the feel like it's that's in a way that's like the, his response to her was. Sort of like the most ineffectual version of Samuel Jackson's response to uh, uh, Christina Ricci's Ray character. It's it's this this thing about older guys rejecting the sexuality of younger women. But in the case of Ten, she's you know represented as being somewhat healthy, whereas in Christina Ricci's case. She is clearly someone who's been damaged by life in some terrible ways. Mm-hmm. Think about other movies where you could see them, you know, like who else could be chained up in a film? Uh, <laughs> like how would it how would it change? How would it change network if <laughs> Faye Dunaway chained William Holden to a radiator? <laughs> I feel Teach like him a lesson. I feel like she'd be the chainer in that one. Like she'd chain him. Um, <laughs> great yeah. films that would benefit from the addition of chains. Um. <laughs> Not the defiant ones. The defiant ones 
has chains. Tony Curtis and Sidney Poitier chained together. <laughs> yeah. Made them have love each other. Yeah, there should just be a whole film festival of people, you know, in chains. Just do Story of O, Gerald's Game. Yeah, just do a whole uh, Are chain- people held against does, their will. <laughs> does Gerald's Game actually have chains? Is it chains or is it just... Well, I mean, it's, it's handcuffs. It's Hand- handcuffs, but it's more or less the same idea. Like, you're locked to a thing. You can't escape it. Actually, um, there's there. It's really divisive. This is a, this is a debate that rages on Twitter to this day. Do do handcuffs? Do films that feature handcuffs should they be included in the genre of chain films? Uh, <laughs> definitely bondage <laughs> films. They could all go under the rubric of bondage <laughs> films. But the people who go to see films with chains in them really don't want to see handcuffs, and vice versa. <laughs> the people who want handcuffs don't want to see chains. It's like it's a. I- yeah yeah i like them both you know well you're i mean you're a you're you're pretty uh you know catholic in your tastes in the in the sense of like not catholic like the religion but in the sense of very diverse in your your choice of bondage implements so i'm sure that uh you know nipple clamps uh ball gags all of these things they just all that's all of a piece for you it's all good, yeah. <laughs> I liked where this episode went. <laughs> we're gonna get a whole new type of listeners. Uh, we're gonna, like we're gonna get into some Fifty Shades of Grey uh, territory. Um, <laughs> but don't be tricked. Black Snake Moan by no means really an erotic movie per se. Like it's not. It's but but it, but there but there is like a weird kind of lurid sexiness to it and but it also is inappropriate. It's it has that it taps into that exploitation film thing for sure. And but then it goes beyond it and is it's much more interesting than just that. Um. Yeah, like yeah. a very very as you said, lurid Hallmark film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, when we're not hosting the World is Wrong podcast, one of the things that you spend your time doing is uh, hosting another podcast called The Director's Wall with your co-host, AJ Gonzalez, where you look at the films of one director throughout their whole career. You're currently focusing on Francis Ford Coppola. Mm-hmm. Were any of the actors in this in a, ever been in a, a Francis Ford Coppola film? I don't think so. Isn't that weird? He never, not no Samuel Jackson, no uh, Christina Ricci. No, just he didn't. Uh, no Kim Richards. She didn't show up. No. As a, no. an extra in the Rain People or something. <laughs> I don't think, if she born then? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe she was like one. Uh, no, there's no, yeah, weird, huh? It didn't, yeah. He, like, as much as Samuel Jackson works, he never, I don't think he's ever shown up in a Francis Ford Coppola movie. None that rings the bell. Yeah. There is a Samuel Jackson connection to coming to America, though. Oh, we forgot. We, oh yeah, oh yeah, 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 totally. One of his earliest roles was in Coming to America, so it makes me think. What about John Landis as a as a potential target for the director's wall? Would you ever consider doing a, a John Landis season? Definitely, I'm a huge fan, big big fan. Like I love him. I, he was he was one of the first filmmakers I ever got into. Like him and Spielberg were sort of around the same time. Uh, it was like that that sort of thing with Spielberg. When you were like, 
I love all these movies. And then you realize, oh, wait, they're all made by the same person. So that must mean I like this person. And what's what's John Landis, what, what's the last film that he made? Oh, I think it was maybe that Don Rickles documentary. Like, it's Mr. Warmth. So it's been a while. He kind of seems almost retired. You know? Like, he hasn't, like, made a lot of movies in a long time. Like, he was doing some TV. He did, like, some episodes of Masters of Horror. And I think he still directs maybe some TV. But, like, the last movie I remember was that Rickles. And that was over 10 years ago, I think. Yeah. But I'm looking overdue for another something. I mean, did you see this week? I mean, the week we're recording this, the Blues Brothers just got into the National Film Registry. So that's awesome. You mean the Blues Siblings? (laughs) The Blues Siblings. The more PC current, the remake, the Blues Siblings. We're not going to gender these guys. We're not. We're just whoever. It doesn't matter. They're the blues and they're related, and that's all you need to know. Um, <laughs> so Although blue, you, but if we're if we if we hone in on just blue, isn't that leaving out some other colors? I mean, isn't that kind of blue supremacist? Yeah. So the rainbow siblings. The rainbow siblings. The, rain, <laughs> the rainbow siblings should be the movie they make now. That way, nobody's upset. I'm a soul her. person. I'm a soul person. Yeah, so person. So you also have another show called Radio Eight Ball, where you answer questions by picking songs at random. Uh, so have you? Who was like the best blues artist you've had on there? Have you ever had a blues? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Artist, you were you? Well, we're both from Olympia, so you might be familiar with Mudcat. Do you remember Mudcat? No. Charlie's neat, Charlie's sweet, and Charlie he's dandy. Charlie he's the very one stole my peppermint candy. Over the river to feed my sheep, over the river, Charlie. Over the river to feed my sheep and measure up my barley. Olympia, Northwest, a true Northwest blues man. He's like probably at this point in his late 60s, early 70s. And he is a guitar maker and he also he's one of those guys who's seen a lot of who is old enough to have seen some of the original blues men not the original blues men but like that second generation of them while they were still uh out there performing and he just brings this tremendous lineage and he's one of those guys who when he sings the blues it feels really really both joyful and Again, maybe the third use of the word lurid, but he definitely has that blues thing that the, that Black Snake Moan has, where a lot of his songs are about train wrecks and addiction and uh, you know and heartbreak and murder, but they always make you feel. But they have this like up bouncy quality that <laughs> that really. I don't know, gets at that sort of the transcendence of the blues. So if you're ever, he, he doesn't have any records, he just, but he plays around Olympia. And if you ever have a chance to see Mudcat play, he's really great. And uh, 
and a lot of his songs are in the Radio 8 Ball app. We never talk about it on the show much, but we do have a Radio 8 Ball app you can download from the iTunes App Store that's filled with every song recorded in the history of Radio 8 Ball. And uh, and his he's got like 12 or 15 songs in there, so definitely worth checking out. Um, so if you've enjoyed this podcast, have you enjoyed this podcast, Brian? I did. Yeah, well. I love this podcast. If this the, is the only podcast I listen to. It's my favorite one. <laughs> what? You really should check out The Director's Wall and uh, Radio 8 Ball. But uh, <laughs> but uh, if, if you out there have enjoyed this podcast, please let us know. Write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. If you have suggestions of films we should cover, if you have corrections, if you want to call us out for things that we missed on this episode, please Get in touch with us. We're we're open to uh, constructive criticism and creative insults. And <laughs> don't don't give us boring insults. If you're going to give us insults, make them creative. And if you're going to give us criticism, yeah. make it constructive. And <laughs> if you want to make sure that Brian sees it, then reach out to us on Instagram. He handles our Instagram page at the world is wrong podcast on Instagram. And what are we going to be doing next week? We are going to be doing, well, you are going to be doing a special episode about Meet Dave. Meet Dave. The Eddie Murphy film with uh, my friend Nigel Fullerton, who hosts the Murphy Mondays podcast. And you're going to be a guest on his podcast talking about... I Spy. So we're doing a little trade-off. He's going to be on here talking about a much-not-liked Eddie Murphy movie. And I'm going to be on his show representing us, The World is Wrong, to talking about another one that no one likes, I Spy. So it's a little fun little... uh, Let's consider this like crossover episodes. Yeah. yeah. Like when they used to do that. So my character from Law and Order would show up on a character, like Homicide Life on the Street. Like back in the day, when it's Sweeps Week. This is our Sweeps Week. Yeah. Well, it's, to, it's also to celebrate the release of Coming to America. Right? It, yes. It, yes. So, uh, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a lot of fun. And, uh, and yeah. Anything else we should say? No, just check it out. It's going to be fun. I'm excited to hear what you guys have to say about that movie. Well, except that the line coming out of this is, since I didn't hear anything from you, I guess we're done. So, <laughs> Okay. Ask again and I'll be silent. Hold on. <laughs> no, I think I'm just going to leave it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? Okay, that's good. And if we don't have anything else to share... I hear, I hear nothing from you, so it falls to me to remind you that uh, I, I know it's, it, it's tough, but uh, the world is wrong, and uh, wherever you are, it's, uh, it's probably wrong about you. I ain't played for nobody in years. Wanted me some kids, whole mess of them. But for Rose, my wife, kids is for another time. Then one spring, I 
seen the change in her. Breast started swelling up. A couple of mornings I hear her in the bathroom throwing up. I done seen it in other women before, so I knew. Then one day, Rose says she had to go to Jackson, visit her folks, and she ain't want me to go, so I stayed. You know how they talk about a woman having that glow? She ain't have it no more. She done cut it out. Got rid of it. That voice in my head, every time I think it's gone, it comes howling back. Calls me with a mail and can't find my way home. In the past, I calls it the black snake mom. Black snake all in my room. Black snake Black Snake moved in. 